0: The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life by Magnet Forensics. I'm Kim Bradley. Today, I'll be talking to Doug Estes about the senseless murder of Laramie Klein, a 23-year-old woman who was killed by her then-boyfriend, David Houston Harvey, between August 10th and 11th, 2017, in Colorado. Doug is a retired senior special agent with the Arkansas State Police and a 28-year law enforcement veteran. He started doing digital forensics investigations in 1998, and you can tell how long he's been in the game from his first Forensic Recovery of Evidence device, or FRED. The serial number on Doug's FRED was one. Now, we here at Magnet love it when investigators find smoking gun evidence on digital devices, a text message or search query or transaction that proves a suspect is guilty or may help to prove some innocence. But a lot of law enforcement requires the tough jurisdictional work you don't see in the movies, figuring out how and where to bring charges that will stand trial in a complex legal system, often requiring the cooperation of multiple agencies. That's what's interesting to me about this case. It shows how digital evidence can help investigators understand not just who committed the crime, but in what jurisdiction the crime occurred. When it came to bringing Laramie Klein's murderer to justice, that revelation made all the difference. With that, here's Doug Estes to discuss this case. Thanks for joining me today, Doug.
1: Hey, thanks for inviting me.
0: So, tell me how you found out about this case.
1: Uh, it was it was August, so it was warm. Seven thirty p.m. at night here in Arkansas uh, was contacted by the dispatch center that we were working a case involving a missing person. There had been a missing person case filed in Alabama by by a mother who was missing a, a daughter. Um, she, you know, mama, mama knows when something's just not right, and. Uh, there was a communication going on via cell phone between an individual posing to be uh, her daughter, uh, and it, which ended up ultimately being our suspect, and the fact that Mama just knew that the conversation that they were having was not, was, was not normal. And so the State Park Service had identified a vehicle uh, at the state parks uh, that matched the description and license plate of a vehicle that was wanted for a missing person. They also found the vehicle to be uh, abandoned at the time with the driver's window busted out. And so they s- set up some kind of surveillance on it. Ultimately, they led to the discovery of an individual who had gone up on the mountain. This was at a, at a state park where uh, you can actually go up and hike a little small hiking trail and go to the top of the mountain. It's very picturesque. and But the individual that was hiking there just really did not fit someone who was hiking. So it kind of drew some attention to him in the first place. And then when they noticed that what vehicle he was associated with, the tax came back to that missing person. Long story short, when he made contact with him, he ended up having a felony warrant for some unrelated cause. And so naturally, they, uh, they towed the vehicle to our state police headquarters and called us to come in and basically said, here you go. I'm unwrapping this present for you, this missing person, and we have a car for you. That's all we have at this time. And so that's kind of how I got started in it was responding to a request from the State Park Service.
0: Okay, so you get this vehicle then, right? Yes. So where does the vehicle take you? How do you proceed from there?
1: The vehicle was processed in our processing bay, uh, and it had this very unique odor, uh, almost musty, kind of stale, like a wet dog. or You know, it's kind of what reminded me of a pet being in the car for an extended period of time. Of course, traveling uh, from Alabama to ultimately we discovered that, um, the vehicle had been in Colorado. So they left Alabama, went to Colorado and ended up in Arkansas. So, you know, it's, it's, it's on the road, it's in use, it's in service, uh, may have been sleeping in the car. We really didn't know anything at that point, but, uh, the car just had this unusual musty smell. So we were able to determine there were, might have been little minuscule spatters of what looked like blood inside the vehicle, could have been up too, at this point, because, you know, I have six children, and so food goes everywhere on a road trip. And so we really don't know what, what we got at this point. But the overwhelming smell is what really, really drew our attention to there's something going on with this car. Ultimately, uh, investigation of the car revealed a little further in the trunk area. This was a Kia Soul, a very small vehicle, a uh, little small compact SUV. Uh, when you raise the, the hatch in the lower end of, of the rear end of the vehicle, uh, overwhelming amount of, of dried, coagulated blood in the, in, the, in the well area where the spare tires kept. So obviously we knew that if it was a human and they, they were in that containerized area of that trunk and they had lost that amount of blood, they're probably no longer living. Could have been an animal? Yeah, absolutely. It could have been. you know. <laughs> I live in Arkansas. We put deer in the back of cars all the time. So you, you don't really know what you have at this point. But we know we have a, a suspect who has a vehicle reported missing, uh, has a felony warrant, and now we have what appears to be a large copious amount of blood, dried blood, coagulated blood, flaky blood in the rear trunk area where the spare tire is. So we knew we had obviously had something going on.
0: So we have a missing person in Alabama. Correct. And you have a vehicle that's a suspect vehicle.
1: In Arkansas, correct.
0: In Arkansas, and it has blood in it. We don't know if it's if it's human, animal, we're not sure. Have you connected these two dots yet?
1: Not not exactly yet. Um, <clears throat> not until we started communicating with the authorities in Alabama that we even knew what the connection between these two people were. Um, David Houston Harvey was the, the person that had climbed the mountain and that the Sheriff's Department had taken into custody on his active warrant. Um, he was an Arkansas native, was working in Orange Beach, Alabama, with our victim, Laramie Klein, who was her name. Uh, they were working together, decided to, spur the moment, get in a car, drive to Colorado. Uh, of course, you know, why don't we go to Colorado for I, Yellowstone? Her name was Laramie. So she ultimately wanted to go to Wyoming because that was her name she wanted to go see it Uh, that was what she was named after and so we weren't real sure what it was ultimately we learned that they were traveling to Colorado in an attempt to obtain marijuana which um, was not as easily obtainable in Alabama somewhere here's the problem somewhere between the them leaving Alabama and getting to Colorado some sort of a of disturbance occurred in the car. And, of course, we don't have but one side of the story still to this day uh, because, ultimately, uh, Laramie lost her life in this investigation. Once we started interviewing our suspect, it was about a three-and-a-half-hour interview. Seemed very forthcoming. Everything accepted a part of where he was at. Ultimately, the story that we received from him is... They're traveling along, he's driving, she's asleep. They are somewhere in Colorado, they know that much. Somewhere around Denver, that's all they know. And she wakes up and pulls a gun on him, just randomly out of the blue. There'd been no indications of any disturbance between them previously that we can find. And so he grabs the gun in an attempt to take it, and in that struggle, the gun goes off, striking her and killing her. Had he pulled over at the first chance, he had a cell phone, so he could have called 911. He could have done a number of things. <clears throat> but I, I, I suppose, you know, you don't know what anyone's going to do until you're in that situation. But ultimately, uh, he pulls into a gas station and decides that the best best plan of action for him was to dump all of her belongings out of the suitcase, place her in the suitcase Uh, and drive her back to Arkansas while she was in the trunk of the car. I mean, that's exactly what normal people would do, I would suppose, if something like that would happen, would be to place them in a suitcase and drive back umpteen hours back to Arkansas. And and ultimately, what even made it worse was the fact that when he got to Arkansas, he didn't immediately do anything with the body. It was about two days post-shooting. Uh, well, post-arrival back to Arkansas before he got rid of the body by taking it to a wooded area just north of where he lived. He lived in a town called Jacksonville, Arkansas, which is where the Little Rock Air Force Base is located. Uh, there's a small game and fish reserve area just to the north of there that has a, a huge pond and a lake around it. Um, ultimately, that's where her body was discovered. He cooperated with us and took us to the body. It would have been a matter of time before we found it due to the fact of pretty heavily used for a uh, hunting area, fishing area. Uh, the smell obviously was, was was pretty tough at that time. And so uh, that's what ultimately led us to where the discovery of her body was. So the problem we have with this whole case was this. What crime do I have committed in Arkansas? So if you think about it, he, he's admitting that there was a shooting. And he admittedly said the shooting took place in Colorado, somewhere around Denver. And so all I have in my in my jurisdiction of investigation is the dealing with the body. Now, we learned after the fact during the interview that the reason why he went to the mountain was to throw the murder weapon and her cell phone and credit cards and things off the top of the mountain so they could not be discovered. And so the use of the forensics on his device and... Um, some location data, call detailed records, all these different... This was not a single push-a-button, it spits out evidence and tells me who did it. There were some very unique techniques done um, in the forensic realm to at least figure out some sort of jurisdiction of who was going to prosecute this case. Um, we prosecuted in Arkansas for the uh, abuse of a corpse, which was a felony, eight years Um the prosecutor in Arkansas would not take any pleas because he was concerned. We were already looking. We were prosecutor shopping, basically, to see who was going to prosecute this case. And no one would step up in Colorado because they were afraid of, did they have jurisdiction? Did they have have the ability and the right to prosecute the case in their jurisdiction? And where did the crime occur? And ultimately so. That was the probably the most difficult part of the case Was determining a venue of some sort. Where where do we start with that? And so that's when the forensics kicked in, call detail records, surveillance footage, geolocation data, mama's gut feeling on when the messages started getting wonky and let's try to piece this together. So it was just, it was a collective type thing. It wasn't just I pushed a button and the forensic says there's a search term for, I, I shot this body, what I do with it now. Nothing, there were some weird search terms, but nothing like, like you would expect. So it was it was a challenging case.
0: So he had a phone and she had a phone. Correct. And you said he was thinking of throwing her phone off. Tell me about your digital evidence. You had his phone for sure.
1: The only digital evidence we end up obtaining was his. Uh, her phone was chunked off of the top of the mountain, Uh never located we even took him out of jail and hand walked him up the mountain to the point where he says that he was at when he threw it off we had tracking dogs we had you know searches but it's it's a rocky mountain it could have fallen in any crack um there's no doubt in my mind that he actually did do that there was thought that maybe he was just leading us on some wild chase but he he did actually do that based on cell tower records the last ping of her device was at that state park. And so we knew the device was there at one point. Now, we didn't know if she was or not, but we knew that the that the ping was there.
0: So tell me, what were you able to get from his phone? All
1: right. Ultimately, uh, he would not give us the passcode. Uh, it was about five or six days later before we ultimately, uh, on our secondary follow-up interview, after he had given us an interview, we began following up the leads that he told us uh, to either you know, confirm or deny what, what he had been telling us. His story was pretty consistent and believable up to the point about where the gun actually, when the gun went off. Uh, everything else, I think, is pretty fairly believable. Um, he was not very forthcoming with giving us the passcode. Ultimately, after about five days, and that's confronting him with w- w- a little bit more information that we knew, Uh, Colorado authorities were uh, now involved as well. Colorado Bureau of Investigations, because technically it was their case at this point. Uh, We were still working it as a as a homicide um, from Arkansas, but ultimately it became uh, a Colorado Bureau of Investigations case. And so they sent two agents. We packed up every piece of evidence, got the car, bubble wrapped it, the evidence from the crime lab, the suitcase that. Had the body in it, and all that went back to Colorado, and so ultimately we did do an extraction on his. Uh, he had a, he had an iOS device, and so uh, I used Axiom to had um, a passcode, plug it in, no problem. Communication took place. Uh, I don't remember what version. I could have to go back and look at at what what operating system version it was. But I mean, it was a pretty standard extraction. Uh, there was there was no advanced functions that we could do at this point. It was uh, uh, get what you get. And so, um, probably the most unique things were Google searches that we found using Axiom that were bodies of water near me. Um, the murder weapon ended up being like a nine millimeter, uh, pink camouflage handgun, very unique color. It was pink camouflage. Um, there were Google searches about how much is this gun worth, um, Uh, a Google search about how to remove a Windows password. And so ultimately we found out that she had a laptop. And so he was trying to find a way to pawn these items or sell these items to get some money. And so the way we actually were able to get some sort of jurisdiction was we knew based on Google searches when those occurred. So he's either in the early planning stages of committing the homicide or it had occurred... And now he's in panic mode because these these Google searches were like one right after the other. Body of water. What's this gun worth? Um, How to remove a Windows user password. uh, All these different search terms. And so we had a kind of a window of about somewhere maybe where to start. If we could determine where she last was alive, then we could maybe close that window to determine maybe at least some sort of jurisdiction to start with now ultimately again this is not not my case at this point uh i'm not going to be able to prosecute a case you know that occurred in, in colorado but we did a lot of the legwork for them because we were we were so interested in this case at this point that obviously you know we were able to obtain a confession on where the body was if he hadn't given us that we may not you know we were at least able to give some you know some relief to the mom uh, she was able to bury her daughter and, and you know know at least know what happened. And so those keyword searches and uh, those Google searches were were critical to about when did this all probably start. Uh, then you start taking, okay, there were photographs. They went to Laramie, Wyoming. There were photographs taken, geolocation, dates and times. When did this picture become taken? The text messages between her mom, Do we have any phone calls that went around there at that same time? Was geolocation turned on? Call detail records to to match the stuff we found on the device. So it was just a big collective group of that.
0: So— When you had said before that you had some geolocation data, oftentimes we're looking at some information that may give us like a latitude-longitude, right, that's going to tell us, you know, some location data. But in this instance, you were actually fortunate where when you looked at these pictures, it actually depicted a location, which helped you to see where they were as well.
1: Yeah, we actually had locations where they were sightseeing. I mean, they were traveling around seeing things in Colorado and Wyoming, and so um, since there were pictures of Laramie and Cheyenne, Wyoming and all that, mom was insistent that that was the daughter taking the picture. She always wanted to go there. That was her namesake. And so she felt comfortable that that was at least those pictures and that geolocation data were accurate, that that was her taking the picture. Shortly after that is when the conversations between the mom and the daughter kind of got off off kilter a little bit. He was basically trying to manipulate the timeline, saying that she was still alive because his ultimate story was this. She wanted to stay in Colorado. He wanted to come back to Arkansas. She said, just take the car and go. That was his story when he got to Arkansas. And so mom just knew that along the way, those messages that they were sending, just, just, it wasn't, they said, it wasn't my daughter. I knew it wasn't my daughter. And so, cell uh, call detail records and cell tower records came into play. Uh, on certain dates and times, <clears throat> we have Google searches for hotels. So we actually went to hotels in Colorado and were able to determine uh, by surveillance footage, them two coming into hotel together and leaving together. So geolocation data from the phones, call detail record data, surveillance footage from call detail records puts them in a location on a date and time and then that video was the last time anyone saw her alive at that point so we were at least able to get some sort of resemblance of she was alive at this point now it wasn't until 15 months later or so uh, actually it was the day that David Houston Harvey our suspect was eligible for parole in Arkansas. Colorado indicted him on that same day <clears throat> so they actually found jurisdiction for uh it ended up being Weld County Colorado uh they end up uh indicting him on uh, murder aggravated robbery because of the vehicle uh and he ended up pleading guilty we never went to court so and I, I think a lot I think a lot of the digital evidence proved that that mindset was um you know I'm looking for Places to dispose of a body. I'm wanting to get rid of evidence. You know, it could be panic mode, but I, I think that had a lot to do with um, the fact that he pled because he knew that that story of her waking up and pulling a gun just didn't make any sense.
0: So your digital evidence dovetailed into the investigation then. You're trying to really tell the whole story. And you're plugging in this digital evidence and these pieces of information that you have in order to support what you've got. Because really, you've got a lot of different pieces of information coming from different angles. You even had surveillance that you had to take into consideration, which is trying to give you, you know, a time frame as well to help to physically see that person alive so you can try to put the pieces together right
1: yeah yeah absolutely ultimately we we knew that in order to ever get a prosecution for even if it was an accident a manslaughter at best that we was going to have to put her alive somewhere at some point during the trip i mean on face value he could have killed her in alabama and we would never known the difference um other than the fact that we know that there were places in Colorado that, that she was alive, we see her on video. So you know, not necessarily to to shore up whether or not that we have a jurisdiction, but just to corroborate that okay, is this story even factual? Can we prove or disprove the elements of the crime based on what we know and what he's telling us? Because we know that. Well, there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. And he's probably not going to give us the whole entire truth, which I still don't think he did. But ultimately, we have to determine, uh, okay, wh- where's this a starting point? We have to start somewhere. And uh, Colorado was very thankful for the fact that we had gone through all that trouble and basically gave it to him. and said, all you have to do now is is figure out who's going to prosecute it. Because everything else, we, we have no more evidence. There's nothing else that I could have thought of to do in this case than what we did. I mean, we, we threw everything on the table that we had. I, I don't know what any other technique that I would have done. Maybe, maybe done a geolocation search warrant on a place where the photograph was taken, but it really wasn't needed at that point because we had location data. She sent the picture to her mother from the phone number. We know that the phone was active. The phone was active until the day it got thrown off of the tower, off the mountain because the tower pinged it. So... I don't know of anything else we could have done differently that we didn't do in this case. But there's so many different layers of evidence, especially digital, that sometimes get overlooked. You know, call detail records shored up with some location data, followed up with a surveillance footage you at least got a place where she's alive. And that's a good start.
0: So when you're able to put this timeline together, you're able to actually dovetail all of these dates, essentially, right? Oftentimes we say a timeline because we're trying to kind of figure out the order that something happened. But really, you're trying to figure out probably within minutes, I'm guessing, you know, at least hours.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And here's here's what where the timeline really came into play, is we took call detail records for his phone, and we could call detail records for her phone. And then we put them on a KML, on a, on a Google Earth map. And then we started putting other items that we have had geolocation data in that map as well. So we could see that, okay, this date there was a picture taken by Laramie, sent to her mother, and it hit this tower. Where was his phone at this time? Well, they were together. Then we start seeing, well, there's a there's a ping on a phone here. Uh, where a conversations going on with her with her mother, is his phone there in the same car as well, and so you start seeing this path of travel, of everywhere there goes, and when once you start triggering with the mom on when things really started sounding weird, you could go right back to that message from call details and say this is when mom felt like something was wrong, so now we know she was alive at the hotel mom says somewhere in this time frame the message got weird and I knew it wasn't her. I've even collapsed that big huge window even a little bit further now to saying, okay, she was alive here. Mom says things are wonky. Probably fits somewhere in here. Where were they during this time? Call detail records, um, geolocation data from photographs because he was still sending pictures from her phone as he was Laramie. And so, but it was just the, context of the messages that were associated with those pictures that led mom to say "Ah, my daughter don't talk like that she doesn't say things like that mama knows when something's not right they just know mom said she had a feeling long before she ever had any idea something was wrong that something was going to be wrong and so uh, that timeline data we often talk about it in digital forensics of you know I need to know what else was going on during that time. And that's very relevant in this case, was what else was happening? Were they driving? Were they at a hotel? Where did that tower ping them? Was there a picture associated with it? Did the, did the data match? And if it matched, then we're pretty comfortable in saying, we know she was here at this date and time, probably wasn't here at this date and time, based on the conversations.
0: So you said he went back to Colorado then, once he was eligible for parole in Arkansas. Then uh, Colorado said, all right, we're ready to to pursue charges here. So what happened then?
1: Uh, it never went to trial. Uh, apparently, they uh, laid their cards on the table, and uh, he ended up pleading guilty to all the charges, uh, and is currently serving time in the Colorado Department of Corrections, so... Um, I was looking forward to a trip to Colorado <laughs> to testify because I felt like we had a really good case. Because, I mean, the story that he said about the gun going off just, it just I, I've been a crime scene tech for almost 30 years on top of all the other jack-of-all-trade things that we do uh, in Arkansas. But the evidence just didn't line up that that's what actually hurt, happened. I mean, it, it, and besides, you, once once it happens, you, you put them in a suitcase and drive them. 16 hours across country and leave him in the car for two days. Once you get home, he came home and saw his mom while she was in the car, went to his best friend. She was in the car in the suitcase, tried to sell his best friend the gun. He admitted that, yeah, the gun was here. It was pink, had pink camouflage on it. So everything lined up in the case. And so, uh, ultimately get an email from, from Colorado said, uh, you're off the hook on testifying. He is found, we found someone to, uh, to indict him and Weld County prosecutor says we are going to go to court one way or the other. And, uh, he ended up pleading. I don't think they even offered him anything. He he's serving substantial amount of time in prison now for that.
0: Wow. Do you know what the motive for the shooting was?
1: This, well, I, we don't know, but here's my theory my theory is this. She wanted to stay and he wanted to come home and he didn't have a way to get home. He had no money, no car. They'd smoked everything up. They had spent all their money and he wanted to get home and she decided, hey, this is, I'm close to my namesake. I want to stay in Colorado. I'm named after the town that I really wanted to go to. I'm staying. And he says, I'm going. And that's what started the argument. That's, the only logical explanation that we can come up with is... And he even he even kind of hints to it. She wanted to stay. I wanted to go back. So she just let me take the car. No. I mean, I, I mean, that I wouldn't make any sense on her account at all. So that's, that's my theory.
0: And so when the autopsy was done of her body, was there any other... Was it only a gunshot?
1: Single gunshot wound to the head. In a position... <clears throat> That would was not consistent with the story. It was point blank um, in a almost in an awkward the way the gun would have had to been ch- would turned during a scuffle would not have sustained that type of injury based on path exit wound. <clears throat> it was it just didn't match the story. Just didn't match. So we knew there was something else going on. I think I think she was asleep. They got in an argument. She went to sleep. She says, Well, when I, whenever I, we get up, I'm going back to Arkansas. And I think he said, No, I'm not. And she pulled, I think he pulled the gun out and shot her while she was asleep. That's my theory. And then he put her in a suitcase. Wow.
0: Well, this is. Was- very intricate case that that you had here of having to weave this data together to be able to to tell the whole story, right? And to be able to work within another jurisdiction as well and working with those folks, which oftentimes uh, we find, especially even with the internet, you know, a lot of sharing of information, you know, someone being in one location and and talking to someone even in another. So that's made, I think, a lot of us in the digital forensics community be even closer knit because we've had to work together to work on those types of cases?
1: Oh, I, I, th- I think so. Uh, you know, we, we talk about how small the forensic world is, and it really is. Um, you know, whether you're passing someone uh, at, at a conference or, or a vendor meet or somewhere in a courtroom, um, the, the digital forensics community is relatively small for the work amount of work that's done. Uh, and, and then you throw into uh, instant response folks and, and you know, the uh, some of the other things that are going on in digital forensics and and uh, cybersecurity and all those different type of things. So the, the community is pretty small. And you know, I did my first exam in, in uh, 1998, I guess it was. And the, the only thing that changes is the the technology and the amount of data that we have to go through. Uh, the first first case I ever worked was 263, 263 or 65 floppy disks. Some of some of the listeners may not even know what a floppy disk even is, but that was the first case I ever worked. Now we're talking, you know, 512 gigs on a phone with a one terabyte micro SD card expansion slot. So the sheer amounts of data just continues to grow, uh, and and the technology changes, and we have to be able to adapt and and stay stay uh, try to stay ahead of it. I'd rather be ahead of it than react to it, but. It's just changing so fast that sometimes we can. And so we just have to do what we can do. So,
0: Exactly right. Well, thank you, Doug. We really appreciate you coming on today to share with us about this case. And as always, it's great to have your insight into the digital forensics of this. So thank you again for coming out.
1: Yeah, glad, glad, you, uh, glad you invited me. I had a good time.
0: That's it for this episode. Thanks so much to Doug Estes for sharing this case with us. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Froclidge and Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening.